that the Christian faith has much of a chance of gaining ground and winning more hearts and minds in Malaysia. So certainly in Australia there is reason to be pessimistic about the Christian faith. For many Australians, Christianity is a thing of the past. For the, the vast majority of the population in Australia, church means very little, nothing really, or worse than nothing. Uh, at best, people see churches as museums uh, and at worst as outmoded institutions who have abused their power and their privileged position. I don't know uh, how you feel in Malaysia. Are you hopeful? Do you see a bright future for Jesus being proclaimed as the only Son of God in this nation? You see, Acts chapter 14, this chapter raises that very question as it introduces us to the first missionary journey of Paul. Just to set the scene that the book of Acts follows on from the Gospel of Luke. You will have seen this as you work through the book of Acts. It records the very early days of the Christian movement in the ancient world. And at this point in the story, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has gone to heaven. He has sent his spirit to his apostles and he's commanded them to speak his word. In chapters 12 and 13, we read, we read about the church in Antioch. And that was the first mixed race church, the first Jew and Gentile church, God's ancient people, the Israelites, gathering together with people from all other nations and backgrounds. And actually, the, the people of Antioch, the believers of Antioch, were the first to be called Christians. The church at Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas on their first expansive missionary journey throughout uh, mostly modern day Turkey. And Acts chapter 14 begins halfway through this first missionary journey of Paul with Barnabas as they enter the ancient city of Iconium. And so we read in verse 1 of Acts chapter 14, uh, it'd be great if you have that open in front of you. Uh, in this Bible it's page 1,112. Acts chapter 14 verse 1. Uh, now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So verse 1 tells us that Paul did actually the usual thing that he did on his missionary journey. He went into the already established Jewish synagogue, which makes perfect sense, given that the synagogue was the place where people heard the scriptures, the Old Testament, read week after week, and the message of Jesus is essentially a fulfilment of those scriptures, that Old Testament. So these people, the people in the synagogue, are the people who should naturally understand what Jesus is all about. Now what did Paul and Barnabas say? Well the verse implies they said essentially the same thing they'd said before. They spoke of the message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus uh, and uh, justification by faith alone. You see, if you just turn back one page, you see what Paul and Barnabas had said in the previous city, uh, chapter 13, verse 38 and 39. Uh, this is what they said. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is free or justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So they're, they're preaching this wonderful message. They said the same thing here in Iconium and they were affected. Uh, they were effective. Many people turned and were converted to trusting in Jesus. Both, we see, Jews and Greeks. 
And in one sense, uh, that could be the end of the sermon, couldn't it? I could stop there. We've, we've done a verse and it's a great verse. There's a profound and wonderful truth in that verse and in what it implies. The comfort of knowing in the previous chapter that through Jesus our sins are forgiven, that because of his death and his resurrection we can have a sure hope of everlasting life, that all we need to do is to trust in him. Uh, it's a wonderful message. And, uh, and we see here that when that message is spoken, that people hear it and they believe and that many people will come and rejoice with us at this wonderful, comforting, precious message. There's a ground for optimism, isn't there? And I could tell you, and I will tell you, never give that up. Never try to move beyond that basic message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Uh, of Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you don't trust in Jesus yet, I, I would urge you to, to do that, to, to check him out and actually come to trust in him. It's a wonderful message and that is where God's power is uh, in, in, his, in this word, in this message. So I'll tell you that. Never give up the basic message of forgiveness and of justification by faith in Christ alone, being freed from our sins. But this chapter actually doesn't stop there. I mean, it doesn't say anything more about the message, but it tells us more about the story of the power of God's word. And it tells us what happened with that message. And the rest of the story is maybe a little different to what you might expect. You see, here we see that the word, that word, that message is not just believed, it's also opposed. Verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And of course, if you've been following through the story of Acts up to this point, this isn't really very surprising, isn't it? Is it? There are many who refuse to believe in Jesus. And especially, it seems, religious people. There are these religious people who don't want to hear the message of Jesus' death and resurrection and who actively here take steps to obscure and to poison the minds of those who hear the message. And in fact, uh, this opposition just made Paul and Barnabas stay longer. Uh, They didn't run away. Verse 3, we see that uh, Paul and Barnabas Uh, They remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So clearly Paul and Barnabas at this point aren't cowards. They don't run away at the first sign of opposition. They face up to it. They challenge it. They speak boldly for the Lord as much as they need to to strengthen those new believers who've come to trust in Jesus already. And you'll also notice in verse 3 the fact that God confirmed his message here by signs and wonders, uh, powerful works. Uh, you, uh, you see the, the signs and wonders. And these signs and wonders here in this context are perfectly appropriate in this context of the Jewish synagogue. These miracles uh, that happen are signs that point beyond themselves. The purpose of the signs and wonders is to testify to the word, to confirm it. And especially in the Jewish context, for those who knew their scriptures, who knew their Old Testaments, then these signs and wonders would have pointed them back, back to God's mighty acts of salvation and judgment in the Exodus. They were evidence that the word about Jesus that was spoken by Paul and Barnabas was indeed a fulfilment of the great works of God in the past. That's why they're called signs. They, they point to something. They signify their signs to something else, to God's word. 
Now, of course, we'll see in a moment that these signs only work properly as signs for those who already know God's word. For these people in the synagogue who had heard God's written word week by week, these signs made sense. But the word, nevertheless, as we see, is still opposed. So they did not make sense to everyone, or at least people refused to believe this word. Now, in fact, the word doesn't just bring opposition, it also brings division. You see verse 4, division. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And so beware of, of anyone who tells you that uh, the, the great sign of the gospel going out is unity. That uh, when the gospel goes out, at all, that, that, that when it's properly spoken or when uh, Jesus is properly preached, then it will always create unity. That division is always bad and unity is always good because as we see here, the true proclamation of the word of God brings division, not unity. So when the word is truly spoken, we might expect division and conflict and arguments because God's word challenges people's assumptions. It makes outrageous claims. Claims like Jesus is the Lord of all and everyone must submit to him. Claims like, yes, we need forgiveness because God is angry with our sin and we must trust in Jesus to be forgiven. Now, I've done personality tests uh, myself with you know, various things and I've discovered that my personality is a conflict avoider. Uh, I hate conflict and I just naturally try to avoid it just as a, a general rule in my personality. But conflict and division cannot be avoided if we are to speak this message to a world that is opposed to and hates God. Now, in fact, in verse 5, the opposition and division reaches a climax. We see in verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, uh, they, uh, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country and there they continued to preach the gospel. It's interesting, one of the things I'm discovering as I'm moving to England is that, that opposition to the word takes forms that you, you just don't expect. Uh, we'll be moving uh, to Durham, which is in northeast, uh, the northeast of England, and uh, it's a very strange thing, but there's an Anglican priest, a vicar of a church that's about half an hour's drive away from where I'll be studying, and uh, this Anglican vicar has a website, and his website seems to be entirely dedicated to slandering uh, Christians, slandering evangelical Christians, especially it seems those from Sydney, which is where I'm from. And so, on this site, I've been recently called an Australian Ayatollah, schismatic, a hater of gays, a hater of women, a hater of Anglicans. There you go, that's the person who's speaking to you now. Um, this man has also published suggestive and lewd comments of an overtly sexual nature about myself and my wife. And in fact, most of the photographs on his website are designed to be sexually suggestive. Now, now it's not just us, of course. It's not just me. I'm just one of his posts. He runs regular features on on others as well. But just remember, this is an an ordained Anglican minister who shepherds a church in England as a a representative of the Bishop of Durham. And I'm not... not mentioning this just to ask you to pray for us. I mean, that would be nice, but uh, you know, I'm a big boy, I suppose I can handle it. But I think in many ways it's a sign of things to come 
in the Western world at least. You see, uh, the gospel message, the message of Jesus, it's not ultimately about sex and sexuality, is it? That's not what it's ultimately about. But implicitly, it criticises the Western culture's view of sexuality. Uh, and in, uh, in England, it, it seems to be doing that. Right now, sexuality seems to be a big issue, a place where Christians who want to hold to God's word are being attacked the most. And I think that human sexuality, issues of homosexuality and roles of women, etc., this is most likely going to be a point where the word of God causes opposition and division in the near future. So I'll ask, what will you do when you're uh, opposed or attacked or criticised for speaking or holding to God's word? When opponents of God's word deliberately poison the minds of people around us like this happening, will you continue to speak God's word, to hold to it, even when it's unpopular, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's difficult and brings division? Well, direct opposition here is certainly one threat to the clear proclamation of the word. But in verse 8, we read about another threat to the word going out, another kind of threat. And so in verse 8, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. This miracle story, if you're looking through Acts, did you notice that this miracle story, this, what happened here, is very similar to the, a very similar incident in chapter 3, where Peter heals a man lame from birth and the man leaps up and starts jumping around. But in this case, the, gra- the crowd has a very different reaction to the healing. In verse 11, uh, what happens? When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now these people are not Jews of course, they're not people who have been attending the synagogue week after week, they're not immersed in the stories of God's great signs and wonders in the book of Exodus as the Jews in the synagogue we saw earlier were and so they interpret the miracle very differently. There's a myth that's recorded in, in an ancient Roman poet called Ovid Um, Ovid's myth uh, was uh, written about 40 years before these events and actually Ovid's myth is set in this very region. And in Ovid's myth, it's it's, it's just a story about gods, but uh, the ancient Roman gods Zeus and Hermes, they come to earth to seek hospitality in a house. I don't know why they do, but they do. And nobody lets them in. They walk around trying to find hospitality. But finally, there is this poor and humble couple who let Zeus and Hermes into their house and provide them with a hearty and friendly meal and as a reward Zeus and Hermes bless them and give them all this magical prosperity and food and wine that doesn't run out and they tell them that that even though their neighbours are going to be punished for their lack of hospitality they will be spared and Zeus and Hermes transform uh, their house into a temple to serve them as priests. Now why am I telling you that ancient Roman myth? Well uh, that's probably would have been in the minds of these people here as Paul and Barnabas came into their city. And it's probably one of the reasons there's that terrible misunderstanding in verse 12. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because 
uh, he was the chief speaker. So they saw the miracle and they thought that, well, that must mean uh, we, we know all about religion, we know about gods, and so this miracle must mean that Paul and Barnabas are gods in disguise. Uh, literally, the verse says they said they called Paul Hermes because he had command of the word. He was a powerful speaker, maybe. In any case, they believed that Paul was in charge of the word. But actually, they failed to recognise that the word of God was in charge of Paul. Paul wasn't a god. He wasn't a great superhuman, was he? He was just a messenger for Jesus. And so these people misunderstood the miracle entirely. They turned the true reality upside down. We see in verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. I suppose they wanted to offer a sacrifice to them because they thought they might get judged if they didn't. They wanted to give them hospitality. But verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. They tore their garments. Why did they do that? It was a sign uh, to them. The sign of tearing your garments uh, was a sign that blasphemy was about to be committed. You see, that here we see the problem of miracles outside the context of the word of God. Back in chapter 3, for Peter... Uh, that was a great opportunity, that miracle, to confirm the word of salvation through Jesus because it was preached to people who knew their Bibles very well. But here, the miracle achieves nothing. In fact, it seems to harm the message, doesn't it? Because people interpreted it according to their own beliefs and their own prejudices. And interestingly, from this point on in the book of Acts, miracles happen quite a bit less in this book. Oh, they happen but a bit less, maybe because of this problem of misinterpretation by pagans. And so, friends, do realise that this is a very big problem with doing good works. Uh, Not just with spectacular miracles, actually, but there's a problem associated with any good works outside of the context of the Word of God. Now, it's right to do good works, isn't it? Good works are good. They're right. That's what they're called, good works. They're a necessary response to the Gospel. And so things like caring for the sick and feeding the hungry, they they should and they do flow naturally from our trust in Jesus Christ. But where you need to be very careful is where you start to think that good works are a great method to commend Jesus to people. And that's certainly, I'm not sure if if, if that's something that you've dealt with, but certainly in our context in Australia, that's, uh, that's an issue, that people think that if you do good works, that's a really good way of... Uh, making Jesus known. But the problem is, by themselves, good works don't commend Jesus, do they? All they do is commend the workers. And so the more we do good works without speaking the message of Jesus, then the more people will like us and the more people will think that we're great and the more people will love our church and the more people will think we're wonderful and the more we'll be praised And that is a terrible, terrible danger, isn't it? Because Paul and Barnabas, they wanted no praise or sacrifice. And ultimately, we don't want people to think that we're great, do we? We don't want people to think that our church is great. Our aim is not to have people pleased with our works, is it? Uh, Of course, in our sinful hearts, I know in mine, we love it when people say good things about us. But if we truly care about people, we want them to trust 
in the word of Christ. We want them to hear the message of salvation, to trust in the God of the universe, not in us. So, healing the sick is a good and right thing to do, but it is not evangelism. It is the word that will save. And indeed, we see here that it's possible for good things, miracles, good works, to obscure and to confuse that message even, especially if we don't at the same time make sure that we're clear on the message, which is exactly what Paul and Barnabas set out to do. That's what they want to do. They want to speak this message. So, verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these, things, these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This message is good news precisely because it delivers them from vain and empty things. In our world, more and more, uh, people are, they do, they worship vain and useless things, don't they? In Australia, the kinds of things that people worship are careers and things and phones and holidays and business interests and retirement plans, things that cannot save or bring life. And verse 16, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul is speaking about the God who made everything and blesses us with life. And it actually seems that this speech is is, is a bit unfinished. Uh, It seems like Paul would have kept going if he could. In fact, across in chapter 17 he does. He does go a bit further in his speech, uh, which starts off this way and then goes a bit further. But it looks like he's got to call it off. Uh, Verse 18 The one reason he's got to call it off is because even with these words they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So he had to just stop it seems because they just kept trying to sacrifice and weren't listening to him. But then uh, there is more opposition and this time the threat of violence is actually carried out. So verse 19. uh, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. It's interesting to see that Paul goes right back in there. Uh, He's just been beaten, almost uh, left for dead and he just sort of picks himself up, dusts himself off and walks right back into the city. Uh, You think, why has he done that? Maybe he needed some medical attention or something before he could travel. But, more importantly, as we saw in verse 3, he wants to strengthen the believers who'd, who'd witnessed and experienced this persecution. They didn't just want to leave the believers with this violent opposition as the last uh, nest, of the last thing that was burned onto their resonance, the last image that they saw of Paul and Barnabas. And so uh, they leave. The next day, second half of verse 20, uh, he went on with Barnabas to Derby on the next day. So they're not driven out here, they leave by their own decision. And then they adopt a deliberate strategy of strengthening. Verse 21, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Uh, Technically it would have been easier for these guys just to say, hey, we've done our job, we've finished, we're going home now because they'd gone around in a circle and they just had to finish the circle and then go home to Antioch. But instead they chose to go back around through the loop and to take the long way and to travel back again through all the cities that they'd already been to. Why is that? Because their goal was not to stay comfortable. Their goal was not just to 
sort of you know, go home, their goal was to complete their mission, to make sure that the work that they'd done for Jesus was not for nothing, to strengthen the fledgling congregations that had been established. And how do they strengthen them? What do they do? What, what message of encouragement and comfort do they give them? I wonder, what would you say to people to strengthen and encourage them if they've been through suffering and persecution? What would you say to them? If you were, uh, someone, if, if you were Paul, what would you say? Or if you were Barnabas, what would you say? Who witnessed the violent stoning of the man who's just brought them the message? Will you say, oh, well, it's okay, it'll, it'll all be over soon, don't worry, uh, it's, it's just the start, you know, it's, it's, it's just something big, it'll die down soon. Would you say, oh, well, you know, of course Paul got stoned because Paul was just a, a little bit outspoken, really, and he just stuck his neck out and, of course, that's why he got the persecution, but, of course, you'll be okay, that'll be fine. What, what does Paul say in verse 22 to strengthen them? Well, verse 22, what do we see? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There's the message. There's the encouraging words of Paul we have recorded for us. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you think that's a strange summary of the Christian message? Uh, How often have you sort of summarised the Christian gospel in that way? Through many tribulations, difficulties, we must enter the kingdom of God. When you think about it though, It's not really all that strange. It's very relevant to the believers given what they've just experienced. It helps to to tell them that what they've just experienced is not abnormal, it's quite normal and it's fine. But in fact it's also a very faithful summary of Jesus' own teaching from the Gospel of Luke. This is just a summary of Jesus really. Jesus preached the Kingdom of God, being saved through trusting in Jesus as King and in the end, the kingdom of God brings salvation and eternal life. But uh, if you've ever read Luke's Gospel, you would know that in the middle of Luke's Gospel, chapters 9 to 19, there are ten whole chapters where Jesus is essentially preaching uh, over and over again that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. As he walks, as Jesus himself walks to Jerusalem in order to die, He tells his disciples about all the tribulations, the difficulties, the hardships that they will face. And so really, Paul and Barnabas are just echoing the words of Jesus. They're just speaking the gospel to them. They're helping these Christians to see that we must expect trouble and hardship and persecution and difficulty and not comfort. And of course you notice that Paul teaches this message to the believers themselves. He's not saying that, well, uh, you, you people here must expect other super spiritual people to face hardships. He's not just uh, urging them to pray for other people over there through a, for a special class of people who will suffer hardship. It's not just for the apostles or for the elders. Uh, it's not just for, for apostles to, to suffer or for elders to suffer. It is for all Christians. And so here's something I want to encourage you with as well. Uh, that is... We must go through, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Do, be, do hear that and be encouraged. You must not expect that Christianity is a road to being comfortable and happy in life. It's never spoken of that way in the Bible. That's not what it is. And it's one of the great dangers, though, that, that faces us as Christians, isn't it? The desire to be comfortable. Uh, 
for almost four years, as I've said, I've been a minister at a church in Wollongong, in Sydney, in Australia, and Wollongong is one of the most comfortable places in the world to live, I think. It's wonderful. Uh, great beaches, wonderful weather. People live there because they want to be comfortable. People move to Wollongong because it's more comfortable than other places. People don't want to leave because it's so comfortable. And the desire for comfort in this life, the constant repetitive practice of desiring and straining and striving after comfort, being okay, having everything okay for yourself or your kids or your your family or whatever, that can and it does make us shrink back from seeing the kingdom of God as a top priority. That will disrupt because it will disrupt and cause problems for our comfort. So let me ask you, is that something that you need to uh, come to terms with? Is comfort something that you desire and strive after in this life? Are you looking for comforts? Do you think that that's what Jesus came to do, to make you comfortable? Well, of course, comfort is something that we all need. And you need to understand that God has already provided us with wonderful, supreme comfort. It's the comfort of knowing Jesus. Knowing that in Jesus our sins are forgiven. Knowing that we have that relationship with God, that the, the, the hope of eternal life. That's, that's the great comfort. It's a true source of comfort. Not our careers, not our houses, not even our families or our friends. And if we look to that supreme and unfading comfort of the Gospel message, we'll see the power of the Word, the power to either suffer pain and heartache. And so, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, and when they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. You see there, verse 26, it says that Paul and Barnabas had fulfilled their original mission. They'd finished, they'd completed what they set out to do. But actually, if you just use the common standards of church growth or or something about this incident, this this missionary journey, I think you'd have to say it was a bit of a failure, wasn't it? I mean, they hadn't necessarily had a big success, had they? They'd come in, they'd been stoned, they'd been opposed, they'd been disastrously misunderstood, they'd set up a few fearful congregations in a few cities. But why... Is it something that they'd completed? Why can they say that the word of God has been fulfilled? Well, we see verse 27. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. The word of God was there and the word can't be stopped. God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. There were people in that city who had heard of Jesus, who had trusted in him, who had turned away from idols, who had their sins forgiven, who had that relationship with God and were looking forward to his return. And they'd been prepared and warned that until Jesus returned, life will not be easy. Life may be full of difficulty and persecution. And with that, God's word had achieved its powerful end and it continues to do so. So this is uh, the power and the pain of the word of God. That's our ground for optimism. Hold on to it. Hold your worldly comforts very loosely, but hold on to that word of God as tightly as you can. Will you pray with me? 
Father, we praise you for the great comfort of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Provide us with the ability to endure and continue to remind us of that unfading, that perfect comfort that you have given to us in Christ so that we may trust you to the very end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.